So, Mark. Yes. I'm guessing that at some point in school, you were required to write poetry. I hate that you brought this up. Yeah? I obviously was. I have actively repressed most of it. And if you're going to ask me to name a single thing about a poem I wrote in high school, I will be unable to, but I will try my best. I am asking you to name one single thing about a poem you wrote in high school. Okay, in ninth grade, we had to rewrite the lyrics of a poem to make a song or something. I have no idea. Do you know what poem or song you used? Did you just do the old Emily Dickens thing? Because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me. Oh, I do remember I had to write a poem based off a painting, which is apparently a thing. And I did Nighthawks by Hopper. Do you remember anything about the poem? No, this is like the worst part of high school English for me because this may come as a surprise, but I was a kid that kind of got into high school English, aka I'm gay. So the poetry stuff is always what killed me though. I don't think I had to write much poetry in high school. We definitely read poetry. I remember I had to make a video based on a Michael Andache poem. So that's out there somewhere. It's probably on my YouTube page somewhere. I could dig it up. We wrote a ton of poetry in middle school. My sixth grade English teacher was really into poetry and we had to write all kinds of poems. The one that I remember is that we had to write a poem basically as like about or to an author that we liked. I wrote mine about the dude who wrote Redwall books. Brian Uh, Shock. Yeah. The good story about that is not about that poem, which is not interesting at all. The interesting one is that two years before me, Fiona, hashtag Fifi Fierce, had also had this teacher. And she wrote her poem about Lemony Snicket and somewhat legendarily decided to end a line with Snicket, which really trapped her because her poem went on about how Lemony Snicket doesn't have a cricket <laughs> oh, God. and his fence has a picket. It was That's, just like total oh nonsense as she tried to put in any word that could rhyme with Snicket. This is so unsurprising. That's not the version she handed in. That's the version she like asked my mom, what do you think of this? And my mom was like, do you know he doesn't have a cricket? Like, is a cricket like a reference to the books? Like, what is the meaning here? (laughs) Oh boy. That poem sounds atrocious and I want to read it as soon as you can get a copy of it. (laughs) I might be able to. My mom might have it because at the end of that year, you're supposed to take your poems or maybe like your best like dozen or something and you make like a Mother's Day poetry book for your mom. That was like the final project for sixth grade English. So my my mom might have it. Yeah, I can't tell that something my mom would either keep forever or throw away immediately because it's hard to guess with her. There's still some like, I did a paint your own pottery thing in like kindergarten that my mom still has. Does it look any good? No, absolutely not. It's like yellow with blue polka dot dog. But then there's so many things that I know immediately just went in the trash. Like, oh, this is nice. Gone. I don't know what her criteria were for keeping, but I think a poetry book would not make the cut. Well, I will see if I can track that down. Yes. We'll do a bonus episode where we just read all of Fifi Fierce's poems one at a time. That's the Patreon. (laughs) Since we will likely get... Mm, maybe one person to subscribe. We'll have to make sure that the fee is high enough. Right, exactly. It'll be a $100 Patreon (laughs) where we just read Fiona's poetry. Sounds about right to me. God, I hated that. Did you ever have to read yours out loud? No, we didn't have to read our own poetry out loud, but in the same sixth grade English class, we had to read somebody's out loud. And there was always this pressure of, are you going to pick something with substance or are you going to pick something short so that we don't have to listen to you for that long? Because I remember somebody did The Raven and we were like, too long. We definitely got a Jabberwocky in there, a lot of Shell Silverstein, and somebody did McCavity the Mystery Cat or whatever. Ugh. I knew one of the old possum poems would show up. Yeah. I think the worst assignment I ever had to do in ninth grade history, we were required, everyone in my high school was required to do the Reformation rap, where you had to rewrite the lyrics of a popular song to be about either the, like, Luther Reformation or the English Reformation. I like this. And then you had to perform it in front of other people, and I hated it. Okay, we did have to, in this same sixth grade class, we read A Christmas Carol, and we had to rewrite A Christmas Carol to be about the book A Christmas Carol. And we changed ours from Jingle Bells to Jingling Coins, sung by Ebenezer Scrooge. See, that's pretty good. We had to write it about King Henry beheading his wives, but about the, like, 
historical repercussions and not just the fun of it. Yeah, sounds great to me. Ugh. Do you remember your song? No. Again, these are all very traumatic memories that I immediately repressed. I was actively repressing it as I was performing. I know I did it with two girls, so I think I was King Henry and they were wives, but I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember anything about it. I got nothing. See, I was the kind of person in high school who would seize any opportunity to make a video for a project. So I made a lot of like 15 minute movies. We were not allowed. It was the kind of thing where I would get people in and I'd be like, great. If you do what I tell you, I will write, direct, shoot, and edit this thing. That sounds about right. I love weird song rewrite assignments. They're so strange. They're so strange. How did that become I have never like- given one. How did that become a common pedagogical tool? Because it's uh, bringing the kids' experience and interests into the classroom. Yeah, but it's also subjecting them to abject humiliation. Eh. <laughs> I know the teachers do it because they find it funny. They're also more fun to grade than, like, a paper. Yeah, but you're just forcing children to sing in front of other children feels mean on purpose. I've never made anybody sing when the entire class wasn't singing. I have made kids sing World War I songs and Vietnam protest songs. See, as a group, that's okay. You can hide. Yeah. But on your own, mm-mm. No, thank you. Anyway. So the poem in this movie is bad, right? Yes, it's very bad. I, okay, I, I was expecting it to be much better. I think it's kind of better that it's bad because, like... It's very high school where, like, she's having a profound moment and everyone else is there like, why are we listening to this? Yeah, so she's having a profound moment that no one else wants to witness and yet they are forced to. And I think that sums up the climax of a lot of high school movies where no one really wants to be there for it, but the audience is invested even if the other teens aren't. I think the ultimate example is in Easy A, which is a movie that is drawing a lot on what this movie was doing. And... She hijacks the pep rally to be about her. Yeah, but at least she's doing something fun, unlike having a, like, end up crying reading your own poem in class. Yeah. That's drama right there. (laughs) Oh, Katerina. So I guess we could talk about this once we've started, but also, have you read Taming of the Shrew? Because I have not. I haven't read it. I think it's the first Shakespeare play I saw, because when I was growing up, the town I lived in would do like Shakespeare in the Park every summer, they had this big band shell Mm -hmm. where they would put on like concerts. I remember a Beatles cover band playing there and they would do Shakespeare. And I think Taming of the Shrew is the first one I saw. I will say I was stressed. One of the only things I know about the play is that one of the ways he tames the shrew is by starving and beating her into submission. And I was really worried. I was like, are they going to try and reference that in some way in this film? And I was very grateful they did not. Sure. It's not a play that I remember in great detail. I remember enjoying it that one time that I saw it. Yeah. I was probably like mm, 10. Apparently it's very disgust even back then about how misogynistic it is. Like whether it's parody or serious. So that's all I know. I read the Wikipedia page. Oh, good for you. I had to see if why it was called Padua High School because I had a suspicion it was like Verona Beach in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of Shakespeare names in this movie. Makes sense. The whole time I was watching it and I feel like it's not unreasonable. I was thinking about Clueless and this is much more tied to the source material than Clueless was. Yes, but this is drawing heavily on what Clueless was doing. Oh, for sure. We should probably start the show. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the most important issue facing the world today. Namely, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one scene flirtation or a truly insanely convoluted scheme. We will dig in and see what is there. And this week we are looking at one of the iconic high school Shakespeare adaptations. 1999's 10 Things I Hate About You. This movie is very much Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet and Clueless had a baby. So it's that, you know, midpoint between like having a light structure, like plot structure referencing a classic work versus just fully going in with the dialogue like Romeo and Juliet did. And then this is somewhere kind of in the middle where they take some lines, they don't take all of the lines, they have characters with the same names, but it doesn't feel as unnatural. Like, the names are easier to work in to have a Katarina and a Bianca than it would be to have, like, a Mercutio and a Benvolio. Sure. 
<laughs> they get just a little luckier with the names that way. So had you seen this movie before? I had not. It's on Disney Plus, so Nick has apparently already watched it several times on Disney Plus since that aired, because it's one of his go-to, I just need to put a movie on movies. And it's it was very fun. Like, Allison Janney showed up. She was on set clearly for two hours, Max. She did all of her scenes in one take and then left, because they use her heavily at the beginning, and then she never shows up again. She has, like, one other appearance. Yeah. And this, for her, is, like... Season one of West Wing, I think, is going on when this movie... No, this is before season one of West Wing. Well, she still gets an and. It's and Alice and Janney. So she's definitely around, but it's still very... Like, it was a very interesting performance. Script? Look, Alice and Janney plays, I think, a guidance counselor who is named Ms. Perky and spends most of her time writing erotica on her school laptop. Seemingly, the students all know this, too, and she's not really ashamed of that. Look, we have talked a lot about bad teachers in movies, but the teaching at this school is, frankly, on a new level. Because Alice and Janney is wildly incompetent, throwing around jokes about the size of students' dicks. Yeah. You have the English teacher, who has clearly just had enough with anything. Yeah, at least his relationship with the students is nowhere near the inappropriate closeness of Edge of Seventeen or Easy A. Um, Easy A, yes. I think Edge of Seventeen is better than any of the teachers in this movie. Yeah, there's just never, they never even really approach a line of like, this is weird relationship between a teacher and a high schooler. I loved Edge of Seventeen, but it's kind of fun to see a teacher that was just over it and not but he's also an emotional a, he's also a huge jerk he is. to it because of it. Yeah, those students seem awful though. I can understand why he was beat down. Woody Harrelson's kind of obnoxious, but genuinely looked out for the interests of his students. Yeah. And then we've got the teacher who's running detention, oh, who right. somehow got in this situation where Julia Stiles is flashing her, it seems, bare breasts at him. And we then cut away, so we don't know what happened there, but it seems like she faced no repercussions. Yeah, she was touching him a lot. The teacher, the school, for such a fancy campus and such a big school, one, everyone seems to know each other, and two... All of the teachers suck. Yeah. Okay, so the high school is Stadium High School in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, It is a public high school. It was built in the 1890s by Northern Pacific Railway to be a hotel, but they abandoned the project during the Panic of 1893, so then the school district was able to buy the building cheap and turn it into a school. Huh. It makes sense that it was not built as a school. Yeah. But it's really cool. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very cool building. Right, yeah. And they got the bay behind them, like, Great place to go to high school. I know, honestly. I'm surprised they haven't sold it. Yeah, it's got to be worth a chunk of change. So this high school, though, Padua High School, I had no idea what was going on at all. What were they learning, Will? I mean, maybe nothing. (laughs) So we know they teach French there. Okay. There's the English class where the teacher does rap Shakespeare, but then sort of immediately abandons that project and just tells them to write their own poem. Yeah. Um... I thought they were at least going to have to, like, write a sonnet. But no, apparently they could just write anything. No, he did say sonnet. She just oh, well, did, she not, did write not write a sonnet. One. They also do have P.E., which... They have P.E., but did you pay attention, like, on that field when they're having P.E., it's just, like, every sport is happening at once. Yeah, so I asked Nick. I was watching this, and I was just like, why do movies portray... None of them seem to portray P.E. in a real way. And he was like, what are you talking about? This is exactly what my P.E. looks like. And apparently... At least at Nick's high school, this is just what happened. People just kind of did whatever. He was one of the kids that was just sitting doing nothing, and occasionally the teacher would be like, go exercise, and they'd run a lap and then go continue sitting and doing nothing. That's not physical education. No, it is very much not, and it is also very much not my experience that was very rigorous and included written tests. He said it's because... Everyone at his school played at least one, if not three, sports competitively. So the need for PE was not as high. All the students were practicing physical education at sports, so they kind of just gave up with their PE. But I watched this and I was like, this is such a weird high school trope that I can't imagine being based on a real thing. And he was like, oh no, this is very accurate. Because my PE was like, everyone in class is playing tennis right now. And then you learn the rules of tennis. Right, yeah. We, and that's then what you we take a test on tennis. Yeah. And then in my fitness class, we had to be like running a mile and like lifting weights and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I did have to take four semesters of PE. I had to take three. Anyway, that was surprisingly realistic. A lot of yeah. this movie was not. Well, no. <laughs> so this movie is 
10 Things I Hate About You. It's directed by Gil Younger. It's his directorial debut and one of only three theatrical movies he directed. Maybe three and a half is more accurate. Okay. Um, he also directed Black Knight, which is a Martin Lawrence comedy. And If Only, which is a Jennifer Love Hewitt romance from 2004. He also wrote a script and was cleared to direct a movie called 10 Things I Hate About Life, which is completely unrelated to this movie, except that it sounds similar in name. <laughs> Mark, this is a weird movie. So 10 Things I Hate About Life, it originally starred Haley Atwell, and then she left the project and was replaced with Evan Rachel Wood. The movie was a romance about two people who like meet at their shared suicide attempt okay so she like goes to this overlook and is gonna like drive off a cliff and then he shows up and is gonna shoot himself and she's having issues with her car so she asks like if she can borrow the gun when he's done with it and like that's their meet cute and then like the movie goes from there they shot most if not all of this movie they started shooting in 2012 then evan rachel wood got pregnant then a producer quit then filming resumed in the fall of 2013 And, like, there are photos. I have promotional photos from the set of this movie. But the movie has never been released. They never finished it. In June 2014, producers sued Evan Rachel Wood for refusing to finish it. And she said she refused to keep working because they stopped paying her when they ran out of money. Yeah, that's how that works. Yeah. (laughs) If you're not getting paid, you don't have to do the work. But, like, this movie sort of exists but also doesn't. It's not on IMDb. Like, we just know about it because we have these articles that were published about it we have these promotional photos that were released i uh just looked up gil younger's wikipedia page and his upcoming film that is supposed to be released next month sounds insane wait what's that so on june 9th 2020 this will be released digital and video on demand it is a film that stars megan fox and josh duhamel and the premise is a young tech whiz accidentally develops a telepathic connection with his dog after a botched experiment and it is called think like a dog all right fine (laughs) josh duhamel and megan fox's parents is interesting quite a age jump there isn't she? I don't know. How old are they? I still think of Megan Fox as like a teenager because that was the last time I saw her. So that's fair. Megan Fox is 34 and Josh Duhamel is 40s, I think. Yeah, 47. So okay, 13 years. Yep, that's a lot. Yeah. Oh my God. That movie sounds <laughs> bonkers. Yeah. What did you send me on Facebook? Oh, I sent you the pictures from 10 Things I Hate About oh, Life. Oh, yes. I want to see them. They just they just look like pictures from the set of a rom-com, only the movie doesn't exist. And also is about suicide? Yeah. But that's like, it's always weird when like movies use suicide as like a starting point. And I get where like the idea is like, yes, thought it was over, but no, now we're starting over. But it just leads to weird stuff like the beginning of Elizabeth Town, where Orlando Bloom spends a lot of time assembling like an elaborate suicide contraption. And it's weirdly like unclear if it's supposed to be funny or not because it is strangely elaborate and then the movie just goes off and kind of forgets about it the only movie i can think of that i enjoyed that started that way is skeleton twins i was thinking of that too that's the like only good movie that starts with a suicide and actually treats it delicately i feel or suicide attempt anyway so 10 things i hate about you (laughs) back to more positive yes indeed This movie was written by Karen McCullough Lutz and Kirsten Smith, who then went on to write Legally Blonde and Ella Enchanted and She's the Man. So a number of varying degrees of iconic female-led movies. Did we do Ella Enchanted or did we just watch it? No, we did an episode on Ella Enchanted because we determined that Carrie Elwes was having a relationship with the snake. That is is right. That's Uh, how you can remember. Yep. That movie... What a time. Right, and then there's the fairy who's dating the book. Which we did not make that part up. Yeah, that's just part of the movie. Uh, These two women, besides those movies, also unfortunately wrote The Ugly Truth as well. The Katherine Heigl movie with Gerard Butler that is rancid. I think on a different note, one of my least favorite parts of this movie I just thought of is it has some of the most poorly developed sidekicks of any rom-com I've seen in a while. Oh, are you thinking about Cat's friend, who I think first appears two-thirds of the way through the movie? Yes. And also, Chastity, I think her name is, Gabrielle Union, who's doing yeah. her best, is just also... 
they are just, they are given their job, they do their job, and that is it. They are not people in any way. But there's the whole thing with Chastity where all of a sudden she's like, yeah, well, now I'm going out with Joey. And where where did this come from? I don't know who exactly. you are. <laughs> I know. That really took away from it. But overall, I did enjoy the movie. This is a fun, charming movie. It, of course, launched a ton of young actors' careers. This was a breakout movie for Julia Stiles, for Heath Ledger, for Andrew Keegan. Um, people like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Larissa Olenek reached new audiences with it. Is this his first big film after third rock to the sun i think so of course it's not his first big film because he is the lead of angels in the outfield oh right but i think this is him trying to not just be a sitcom son anymore is the vibe i was getting he's like 18 when they shot this they're all actual high school aged which was a shock it's fun except i don't know about heath ledger who looks like he's 25 yeah but he's only 18 that's just what heath ledger looks like at 18 heath ledger was born in april 1979 so yeah, he's probably 18 or 19 when they yeah. shot it. That's <laughs> just... So they cast someone the appropriate age, and you're still like, I can't believe they cast a 25-year-old to play a high schooler. Look, he's hot. He just looks old. <laughs> I know. He is very charming. Uh, I feel like this movie would not have worked without him and Julia Stiles. They really are what make the movie work. And I think the movie like has some fun stuff, but really starts to click when the movie becomes more about the two of them. Right. Because at the beginning of the movie, the movie is kind of telling you that that it will be about Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But the problem with his story is that his story is entirely about him trying to get with, like, one of the first girls he sees at school because he decides she's hot. Like, he doesn't know anything about her. Right. It's extremely Shakespearean. And it's based off a Shakespeare play, but it does feel very strange in a high school setting like i buy it more in you know the 1500s where you see a woman and you actually want to marry her well also just because there's the idea that communities are so much smaller that you see a woman and you're like wait i don't know who that is that's weird and she's beautiful right but here he's just like he sees one hot girl and decides he knows everything about her and must date her right so like i feel like the movie kind of struggles there a bit not least because they come up with a truly insane plan like more insane maybe than the one from Red Eye. <laughs> like, you talk about that that Ebert line that I quoted about a plan constructed entirely of things that could go wrong. Like, that is the plan in this movie. Yeah, the plan here just does not make sense. No. And I get it, you're adapting a Shakespeare play, but still, you gotta figure out how to make it make at least a, sem- a like, one iota more sense. Well, I think it makes more sense in Shakespeare in part because they're adults. Yeah, that is also true. Well, they were adults, but at that time, they were probably still the same age. (laughs) Sure. Now, this movie opened on March 31st, 1999, in second place behind another new release, The Matrix, which opened the same weekend. Ooh, that can't have helped their box office. It did all right. So it opened to $8 million. It ultimately made $38 million domestic, $53 worldwide, against a $13 million budget. So it's the kind of thing where the movie's cheap enough that even being up against The Matrix, it was still able to make its money. And then it built a very positive reputation in part because of all these young actors who really, many of them, although not all Gabrielle Union, get a chance to shine in the movie. Right. But Gabrielle Union still goes on to do much better work than this. Well, of course. I mean, did she not get delivered from Eva? She did get delivered from Eva. She also, what else did she do that we covered? Well, she's in Love and Basketball the next year. Oh, that's just the next year? Yeah. And then she was in Bring It On. Which I have not seen. Which I want to see, but I, I have, have also it not in seen my it. crate of Blu-rays. Oh, we should wa- maybe we should do that someday. All right, yeah. Gabrielle Union and Kirsten Dunst very much appeals fun to, to me. me. All right, so I do agree that this movie I think works best because of its casting and hundred percent the future careers that this didn't even specifically launch, but furthered really like you see the talent in these actors. In some cases, this does even for people who had had careers before this does become a big coming out into larger films also i couldn't tell if heath ledger was trying to do an american accent and just not doing well or if that's just how he sounds and it turns out no he's not doing an accent there that's just what his accent is i mean they address it in the movie they do julia styles asks him if it's fake it was very late in the movie so the whole movie i was kind of confused but then they just throw in a line oh yes i lived in australia until i was 10 done 
addressed. Does it? Box checked. It weirdly reminded me of the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, where Alexis Bledel is dating that Greek dude who's allegedly lived in Chicago until he was like 12. <laughs> I feel like it's much cheaper than hiring a dialect coach. So, Except that dude had a Greek accent. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot a lot of that movie. Totally anyway, movie. <laughs> should we start talking about the romances of 10 Things I Hate About You? We will cover uh, most of the film. Yeah, sure. I think the only other thing we really need to mention is that 10 Things I Hate About You did not get a sequel, and it did not get 10 Things I Hate About Life Made, but it did get an ABC Family adaptation. One season of a TV series ran with most of the episodes, also directed by Gil Younger, and Larry Miller came back to play the dad again. Did anyone else show up? No, but a lot of them were too old by then. Yeah, that's fair. It's 10 years later. Oh, yeah. Did not process that. But it's interesting that a lot of rom-coms go on to get TV shows, since my big frat Greek wedding did also when... I mean, for a hot second. For a hot second, but when a lot of it is based off of one romance. So I guess you're just taking the very core of the idea of like... and then of course you build outside characters more. Right. But I feel like a rom-com does not lend itself immediately to the idea of a TV show. I think it can be done well. There are some good rom-com shows out there. Uh, Of course, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a show that draws heavily on all of that. The key with it is that you need to figure out what to do with a relationship. And many rom-coms end with a relationship really starting. Right. With a TV show, you need to figure out what comes next. Right. I think it's just the idea that, not that you can't do a rom-com TV show, it's more the idea that taking a movie, you then just build off the world instead of the characters you've developed. Which I assume is what they were planning to do with the Steel Magnolias TV show. (laughs) I guess. I forgot about that, too. Oh, boy. That wasn't really a rom-com, though. It was not that calm at the end. Anyway, should we start breaking down the romances? Let's do it. So every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points so we can talk through and evaluate its romance. So Mark, you're going to be walking us through the romance of 10 Things I Hate About You. All right. So the first point is just establishing who everyone is because there are so many characters involved in this romance that it takes a little bit to actually get the ball rolling on it. Over there, we've got your basic beautiful people. Now listen, unless they talk to you first, don't bother. Boy, is that your rule or theirs? Watch. Hey there. Eat me. You see that? So... The movie, I have to note, opens with One Week by the Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah. I only know the Weird Al lyrics to that. I know almost all of the lyrics to that song still. The Weird Al ones are about the Jerry Springer show, and he's describing all of the crazy things that have happened in X amount of time on Jerry Springer. I don't think I've heard that one. That sounds interesting. Anyway, so the movie opens with a clear reference to Clueless as four rich-looking, young, blonde teen girls are riding in a convertible Jeep, but then it cuts to the car next to it, and this movie is about Katarina, and she's in her grungy car listening to her grungy music and rolls her eyes. She's not like other girls. She's a bad girl. And it's not clear that she's really a bad girl. I think she just likes punk music and is a feminist. (laughs) Yeah, which apparently is a bad thing in this movie, it seems. Yeah, does she have to learn not to be? I don't think... Is that part of the movie? It's not that she has to learn not to be a feminist. It's more learning how to um, do it constructively, because by being so aggressive about it, she's just turning everyone off, is the point, I guess. She's also sort of, in a way, using it as a shield to avoid engaging with people. Right, because she does not do that well. engage with people so then we meet the other characters we meet joseph gordon levitt who is a new kid talking to the guidance counselor for some reason talking to miss perky talking to miss perky who is working on her novel what's weird is that she's always on like the first line it's like she keeps starting over describing a penis she's always on the first line of the page but it's not always like the first line of the book So it's interesting that they always just have it on the first line of the page. I guess so they don't have to write any more of the book than they need to. Yeah, if they write too much, they become an R-rated movie. 
Yeah, so she's a terrible guidance counselor. She's like, eh, this high school will be like any other high school you've been to. Scoot! She always tells students to scoot. Yeah, and then he teams up with David Krumholtz. Right, so he meets an AV nerd, as we learn, and they run through all of the different groups on campus, but I really enjoyed that it was not the stereotypical high school cliques from yes, any I like other this movie. Too, whereas like Mean Girls and High School Musical do their rundown, but this is just like the insane list. <laughs> yeah, so this is like... Like, oh, they're the cowboys. Yeah, <laughs> There's the Cowboys. They're the coffee lovers, as you have at every school. These are the future MBAs where all they talk about is business school and golf. The white Rastas were pretty funny. White Rastas, and then the pretty people. I love that they don't call them the popular people. They are just the pretty people. Did you know David Krumholtz is rapping now? Seriously? Since COVID started, David Krumholtz has released two tracks under the name Bin God Still God with a group uh, hemoglobin, like ha- hemoglobin, but spelled hemoglobin. I hate this. I refuse to engage. I will send them to you. Oh, God. So, anyway, the movie continues to introduce us to bad boy Heath Ledger, Patrick, who shows up to class for a solid 10 seconds and then just leaves. Yes, as he does. Gotta go back over to shop so he can drill through some books. Right. You meet Joey, who is the model, I guess. He is a working model that is... yeah. Just, he's the airhead, rich, mean kid. And I think those are all of the main players. I think you might- We have not mentioned Bianca at this point, who is Kat's younger sister. I thought I did. And the girl that Joseph Gordon-Levitt immediately falls in love with. Yeah, so you meet Bianca. She at first appears to be an airhead who's obsessed with just looking pretty, but is not allowed to date. Right, because no dating till you graduate is Larry Miller's dumb rule. Right, it's a dumb rule. It's based off of how many teen pregnancies apparently he has to deal with on a day-to-day basis as an obstetrician. He's an OB, and it's clear that he quite regularly, when his daughters push him on it, makes them wear like a pregnancy suit to feel what it's like to be pregnant walking around. I love that he doesn't reference having the kids. It's just about physically being pregnant. Like he does not want them to go through the pregnancy more than bringing up the actual consequences of the child. This of course is Larry Miller who played Paolo the designer in The Princess Diaries. He's also in Pretty Woman. Yeah, he owns the shop that turns her away. Right. So then we get the start of the plan, and this brings us to point two, where we find out that Joseph Gordon-Levitt wants to date Bianca, but can't because of the whole rule that she can only date when her sister does. So he and Krumholtz come up with, again, the most insane plan. But it's also insane that they need the plan, because what kind of rule is my younger daughter can only date when my older daughter does? Right, yeah, yeah. so Larry Miller modifies the thing, because Bianca really wants to date, and... Larry Miller's like, fine, you can date once Kat starts dating. Because he's like, Kat doesn't want to date any men, so this solves my problem. How do we get him to date Kat? I don't know. I mean, uh, we could pay him, but we don't have any money. Yeah, well, what we need is a backer. What's that? Someone with money who's stupid. So then Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like, great, so here's our move. I'm not going to try to date Bianca. Instead... We'll get rich guy Joey to pay Heath Ledger to date Kat so that rich guy Joey can date Bianca. And the plan then hangs on Bianca saying, no, thanks, rich guy Joey. I do not want to date you. I want to date Joseph Gordon-Levitt. This despite the fact that she has pretty consistently appeared much more interested in Joey. Right. I guess he's just counting on his intrinsic charm because he's actually just trying to be her friend by teaching her French instead of just pursuing her romantically. It's a dumb plan. The problem is it works in the end. It's pretty annoying that it works in the end. In no world should this plan have worked. Because a lot of it involves him being obnoxious. Yeah, in no world should this plan have worked. But this sets up all of the romance of the film. So right now we've got Joey and... Oh my god, what's Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character's name? Cameron. Joey and Cameron competing to pursue Bianca, and then Patrick is being paid to fake a relationship with Katarina, and as all of us have seen a movie before, we know that real love will develop there. And that is the part I was much more invested in. Well, again, like, it's the one that feels like it has emotional honesty to it. Because Joseph Gordon-Levitt is being a little turd the whole time. Where, like, he's getting pissy that Bianca's into another dude. And he's orchestrating this whole absurd scheme. Joey is a dirtbag, so we're not into him. So, like, 
even though Heath Ledger is originally in it for money, there is a greater degree of emotional honesty that you can invest in going on there. And like him getting involved in the scheme is kind of fun where they have to convince him to go to this, what is it, a lesbian bar? No, it's just a Riot Girl concert. I think. Okay. So he goes to this Riot Girl concert where everyone knows him by name, despite his embarrassment <laughs> over going there. I will say I watched it and he walked in and there was no men there. And I was like, well, even at a concert like this, there would be at least one gay. And then they go to the bar and there is one gay at the bar. So Patrick is well known in that- Patrick Verona, Shakespeare name. Yes. There are a lot of rumors about Patrick that he once ate a live goose- or duck, except for the beak and the feet. Um, he disappeared for a year, so people said he was in jail or a porn star. I'd like to note that he never denies having eaten the live duck. He just calls it hearsay. <laughs> that is true. I doubt he did. That sounds impossible. But interesting to watch. I think the duck would win in any situation. All right, Mark, would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred <laughs> duck-sized horses? I think the duck-sized horses sounds... Right, because you can kick them. Right. Whereas the horse-sized duck, that sounds like the world's worst creature. Yeah, it sounds horrifying. This used to be my opening gambit on dating apps, was asking that question. I was going to say, did it work? So... Probably not. Here's the thing. I felt like it was a good screening device for, is this person going to put up with my nonsense? It's true. That is a good way of giving them a taste of what's to come. Yeah. But anyway, so we have the plan set up. Cameron is tutoring Bianca. Joey is flirting with her. She seems into Joey. And then Patrick goes to the concert to try and first date Katarina. Who has refused to go out with him multiple times. He's been trying to get things started so that he can get paid. And she's been turning him down. So... He goes to this concert and she's becoming more open to him having seen him there where she's saying like, maybe I'll let you take me out. Not saying yes yet, not saying no. Right. And then this brings us to point three where eventually Patrick is able to convince Kat to go to the party at Bogey something's house. Bogey Lowenstein. <laughs> Bogey Lowenstein. Poor Bogey Lowenstein. Well, Bogey Lowenstein stole the leadership of the AV club from David Crumholtz. And nope. so that's why the revenge is brought in, right? He kicked David Crumholtz out of the future MBAs. Oh, okay. And so they get their revenge by putting out fake flyers that say there will be free beer at Bogey Lowenstein's party. Which turns out not to be a problem because when everyone shows up, they appear to have brought tons of alcohol. Right. So no one was angry that there was no free beer, I guess? I would be. I guess so. Why are you doing this? I told you, you may have a concussion. You don't care if I never wake up. Sure I do. Why? Well then, because then I'd have to start taking out girls who actually like me. Like you could find one. Oh, see that, there. Who needs affection when I have blind hatred? But anyway, again, the weird parents rule is you can only go to the party if Kat goes. Which actually, that one kind of makes sense. Because then she's there to look out for Bianca. Yeah, not that she does that, but it kind of makes sense. Right, that at least has some logic to it. But anyway, they all go to the party, and this is where you first see some connection between Patrick and Kat. Oh, I thought this was later, but no, it's before the concert that Cameron gets Bianca to help him go through Kat's room to find info about her. Oh, right, because that's what sends him to the concert. I forgot about that. And there's the whole conversation about black underwear means that you want to have sex. Right, obviously. (laughs) And it cannot possibly mean this is the underwear that I have right now. Right. Or she is the kind of person where everything she owns would be black. Right. But no, uh, you don't wear black lingerie unless you want someone to see it. All right. That was so This is like on the level of like, meet me in St. Louis. Nice girls don't let men kiss them until after they're engaged, where it's just like stated as such a fact. Yeah. So that's how they get Patrick to know Kat enough to finally convince her to go to this party. But at the party, Bianca and Kat have a fight over... They have so many fights in this movie. I can't remember which one is which. They have a lot of fights, but they all generally are around Bianca is annoyed that Kat is getting in the way of Bianca living her life the way that she wants to live it. Right. She feels that Kat is trying to control her life in a way and is annoyed by it. So to deal with this, Kat starts to drink copious amounts of tequila and ends up drunkenly dancing on a table. Yay! Which, you know, always goes well. And then this is where Patrick rescues her. They go... She throws up on his shoes. ...to swings. They have a heart-to-heart. She throws up on his shoes. And it's a situation where you're, like, kind of grateful that she throws up. Because hopefully that'll keep her 
alert more because she also apparently has a concussion potentially so patrick is very much trying to keep her awake it's very sweet it is she is also drunk when she tries to kiss him in like the most awkward thing possible yeah he eventually drives her home thank god because she is not in a state to drive and she tries to kiss him and then i think because of guilt over the situation patrick denies the kiss yes which kind of makes sense i mean she is smashed and has also just thrown up i know i would not be into it either but it's like an incredibly awkward move where she goes in for the kiss and then he's just like maybe another time right so the party is also where bianca finally starts to see through joey's bullshit and that he is a terrible model right and he's a jerk to her so then she winds up asking cameron for a ride home he was about to leave kind of pissed off that she was into joey which had been clear from the beginning i know it drove me insane cameron is the worst he's like how dare she flirt with joey even though i set that up and also she's been flirting with him since before this right cameron engineered this situation and just because he had a dumb plan doesn't mean he gets to be mad at bianca it's also at this party that heath ledger is like yo cameron like If you want something, go for it. Which is like dicey advice when it comes to relationships. Yeah, gross. So anyway, Cameron agrees to drive Bianca home. And then he like chews her out for having been a jerk to him. Unfairly, in my opinion. I think there's an extent to which she was kind of stringing him along. Yeah. But I also think that he was weirdly possessive of her. Yeah. So this does make her realize how self-focused she's been and does not really pay attention to what others perceive. She only like thinks of what makes her happy. But what she does is just kiss him. Yes. And I would like to note that a kiss, while nice, is not an apology. So... (laughs) Eventually, she goes inside, and this brings us to point four, which is the prom, including the build-up to the prom. Okay, at this point, do we have to talk about when she flashes the detention teacher. Yes, so this is after the party. Right, so she felt embarrassed because Heath Ledger had not kissed her. So then he is convinced that the way that he can make things right again is to embarrass himself because she felt embarrassed. So this is the can't take my eyes off of you number that he performs in the stadium. Right, with the help of the band, whose t-shirts just say band on them in case they forgot. I like that the band isn't that good. Yeah, I do too. It's a wonderful high school touch. Yes, it is very much what a high school marching band would sound like. Right. So he does that and gets detention for it. And that's when she then breaks him out of detention by flashing the teacher. It's so uncomfortable. But then they go paddle boating together. It's very strange. Right. And there's no follow up (laughs) on it. Like she just flashes the teacher, cut to, they're on a paddle boat. It's it's so weird. But they're paddle boating around. They're getting to know each other. It's clear that romance is budding they go to like a paint fight it's not paintball it's like throwing paint balloons at people yeah it honestly looks pretty fun yeah it looks great let's do it and then he takes her home and they sit on the porch and she basically finally gets him to open up about himself where we learn that he may have eaten a duck that's right and he was not a porn star we also learned that her philosophy on decision making is I don't like to do what people expect. And in like any circumstance, she tries to figure out what people would expect and then does the opposite, which is an anarchist way to go through life. Yeah. And then it also creates the expectation that you will do what people wouldn't expect of other people. So she is still being predictable. Which is important for Heath Ledger because he's able to say like, well, nobody expects you to go to prom. So you can do the unexpected by going to prom with me. Right. And she doesn't really fully agree, but she doesn't not agree to go to prom but then she decides not to go for some reason well she and bianca have another heart to heart where she talks about her romantic history with joey how they dated freshman year and around the time that bianca and kat's mom left kat and joey had sex and then she decided she didn't want to do it anymore that she wasn't ready and told joey and he broke up with her and kind of tarred her name around the school which shows what a scumbag he is yeah he's awful And that is why she, because she's been particularly rude to Joey through the whole movie. Right. And he's been particularly rude to her, so. Yeah. And she was saying, like, yeah, Joey wants to have sex with you, which I think was pretty clear. Yes. I feel like Bianca must be aware. But that's the end of that. 
Joey instead goes to prom with Chastity, who is a dirtbag friend. Yeah, Chastity's the worst friend. David Krumholtz goes to prom with Kat's friend, who previously, I think, had not existed, but is in love with Shakespeare. Yeah, and he gives her a Shakespeare. That is the worst. Oh, it's so shoehorned in. I hate it so much. It's weird. Also, Bianca's wearing the most ugly prom dress I've ever seen. It's truly hideous. Part of the problem is that, like, it is just deeply unflattering. Like, the top does not fit her well at all. And it's not the same color or material as the skirt. Right. It's a very bad dress. Oh, it's so awful. I like how much this show in the last, like, month and change has just become you and me as fashion critics. We have a lot of opinions on fashion, and they must be shared. We talked about the rhombus dress in all ways. We (laughs) talked about all of Emma Fairfax's clothes in Dr. Doolittle. I mean, this has been well established, because we always comment on wedding dresses well that's because the maid of honor dress is such a bad dress yeah and then we had 27 dresses see that one's less fun because the point is that they're bad right but then even the good dresses in that i feel like we're not up to snuff no her sister's wedding dress that it was badly constructed because she chopped up her mom's wedding dress and shouldn't have done it that was a good dress yes but anyway this prom dress may take the cake for bad dresses it's quite bad I don't think it's as bad as the always dress. No, it's really not. Oh, God, that dress. So anyway, they go to the prom. Patrick and Kat are having a good time. Bianca and Cameron kind of are. Yeah, because Bianca has no one to go with. And then Cameron shows up and is like, hey, I'll take you. And she's like, cool. Right. And then Joey shows up at the prom and starts yelling at Patrick, like, I didn't pay you for Bianca to go to prom with someone else. This, by the way, is with 13 minutes left in the movie. Like, I'm watching this movie constantly being like, okay, obviously a fight is coming. They're going to have some misunderstanding. And I just keep checking the runtime. Yeah. Like, we don't have time left for a fight. Yeah. And it's at 13 minutes left that Joey shows up, yells at him. Then Joey punches Cameron in the face for being there with Bianca. And then Bianca punches Joey three times. No, punches twice and then knees him in the balls, which is a family tradition because Kat had done that to someone else who tried to grope her. And Miss Perky mentions that whoever that guy is, his testicle retrieval surgery went well. Kat responded, though, that she still maintains he kicked himself in the balls. Great line. But yeah, so Kat obviously runs out crying because Patrick has been pretending to date her, in theory. As, like, fights in a rom-com go, this one is, like, pretty reasonable to react upset. Oh, definitely. But you compare it to, like, the fight in Hitch. This is much more reasonable. Yeah, this is a real reason to fight. But then Cameron and Bianca are happy together. Poor Kat is sad. And then this brings us to point five, which, as you mentioned, there's very little time left in this movie. So (laughs) I expected it to be much longer. But then, nope, they get back together because she reads a poem. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh. Even worse, when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact that you didn't call. But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. She reads a poem and he takes the money that he got from dating her and buys her a guitar so she can start her band. Right. Very sweet. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where at first I was like, wait, he bought her a guitar? But it's all this money that he had gotten because of her. Right. So the poem is called 10 Things I Hate About You, which is where the movie comes from. And... The last thing she hates about him is that she doesn't hate him and she's not actually mad. And then she runs out of class crying. People leave class so frequently in this movie. They just go. People just leave. Well, this English teacher also kicks people out at the drop of a hat. Yeah, he is a terrible teacher in that regard. Like part of your job is also dealing with behavior issues. Right. But that's the end of the movie. They kiss in the parking lot. And then there's a band on the roof of this high school. (laughs) And no one's paying attention. (laughs) I do wonder how much of their budget was that helicopter shot. A fair amount. Right. I mean, the movie was like $13 million. Yeah, that shot is probably the most expensive shot in the movie. Easily. So, Will, after watching all of this unfold, do you find the romance of 10 Things I Hate About You believable? In short, no. I think that a lot of the Cat Heath Ledger stuff is pretty good. I think that everything connected to Cameron's plan is mostly terrible. Like, I haven't figured out exactly where I'm going to rank this. I don't think it can be higher than a five for me. No. Because some of the circumstance, like Cameron being into Bianca, and Bianca's kind of flirting with him, but also wants to be with Joey, and, like, Joey's kind of a jerk. All of this stuff makes sense, except that it all happens under the auspices of this insane scheme. Right. All of the couples that end up together make sense. I don't know about David Krumholtz and Shakespeare Girl. 
okay, fair. No idea what's going on there. But you could make an argument that they all make sense, but it's so convoluted that I think a five is about where I land. Yeah, I think it's where it belongs. Do you think that any of these leads are dateable? I mean, they're teenagers. So many of them are so tiresome. Yeah. Like, these people are fun to spend time with in a movie. I think this is a fun movie. But, like, imagine spending a day talking to Kat. No, it would be awful. All None of them are dateable. Maybe like your Patrick. best bet. I was going to say your best bet is like David Crumholtz, but he has like some weird resentment around attractive people that I don't know about. Yeah. Do you think that either of the couples would stay together? I don't know. Um, I think Kat and Patrick have a better shot than Bianca and Cameron because I think that's a fake relationship that barely exists. But Kat and Patrick are about to become a cross-country romance, and I think there is a decent chance of a turkey drop somewhere in there. Oh, I fully believe that if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date who would you choose i have no idea who would you choose (laughs) i have no idea either they're all bad because even bogey is bad like i would never date bogey no he's terrible maybe one of the cowboys i have no idea they seem fun they seem fun they just commit to a bit and they're there for it they are just being themselves they could probably get me some good meat maybe and I just love that they treat it like it's a normal thing that every high school has the cowboys. Yeah. All right. So we're doing the cowboys. Great. Well, a lot of the movies we cover have been turned into a musical. Do you think that 10 Things I Hate About You should be turned into a stage musical? I think it could work. Essentially, do you think that Taming of the Shrew should become set in a high school and made into a musical? Well, I wouldn't necessarily want a musical adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew, but I think that an adaptation of this could work. I think it could. It has so many scenes that are tied to music already that it doesn't require you to add too, too much. Right. I don't think it needs to be done. It's not one of those movies where I'm like, this would be better as a musical. Like, I think that was true with Always. Like, that is a movie that would probably be better as a musical. I think this one could be done and it wouldn't be bad. That's how I feel too. Should it be done? Maybe not. Probably not. All right. I think that about covers 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, it's a good movie. I'm glad we did it. I think this was also a listener suggestion, so that's always nice. Yes. Next week, we will be going back to the world of Bollywood by covering the film Three Idiots. Which was a massive hit when it came out. Yeah. I think it had crossover. Like, it did pretty well in the U.S. too. Like, I heard about that when it came out. I had not until I saw it a couple years ago. I'm excited to rewatch it. Yeah, it should be fun. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can always email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right. Last question. <laughs> what is the best piece of dating advice you got from 10 Things I Hate About You? Ultimately, it is best to do what you want and not worry quite so much about what other people will think, which is where Kat gets to on her way to getting to prom. My piece of dating advice, big musical numbers with the high school band. Works in this. Okay. Works in Easy A. Okay. (laughs) All right. There you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Forgiven me, but it'll still be two days till I say I'm sorry.